You all want freedom and you all want fulfillment in life. Everyone wants the freedom to kind of run your life the way that you would like to run your life and you want to be happy doing it. Right? And this is why different people choose different religions. They choose different beliefs, different worldviews, different relationships, different places to live, different things to eat, different ways to dress themselves. Is ultimately we are pursuing some kind of I want to be free, I want to be in control, and I want that to be deeply satisfying to me. The text that we're coming to this morning, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul is going to show the church there are two basic ways that people go about achieving or receiving that freedom and that sense of fulfillment in life. Okay, so let's read this and then let's contrast and compare and draw some conclusions here this morning. So Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul writes to the church, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. What we see here is Paul contrasting the subtle danger of all human or worldly philosophies in contrast to the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus Christ. So let's contrast these this morning. Let's look at the essence of each of these two things and also their end. Like if I follow this, where is it going to take me? And you see him leading off here this section with the word see to it. And it's, it's literally a, a Greek exclamation of, of watch out, beware. So he's warning us of something. Well, beware of what? He says, beware that you are not captivated by some philosophy, just some way of thinking that pulls you away from Christ. Okay, philosophy. It's interesting that Paul doesn't name a specific philosophy, He's very generic, just human philosophy or something that comes from the elemental spirits, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I think this is actually helpful that in his critique, he leaves it generic because that, what that means is we can take the word of God and we can now today apply it to many other circumstances rather than saying, well, he was just talking about this one philosophy. The reality is he was talking about any philosophy that comes from these two sources. So let's look first of all at the essence of these human philosophies. Um, Philosophy is just a general term in Greek for a set of principles that define the good life. It's interesting, Miroslav Wolf today at Yale, 
has a course where he goes into different philosophies and he has you study these different philosophies, different worldviews, different religions, and just pursue to the root, what does each of these religions or philosophies say at the end of the day is the core, is the foundation, the root of the good life? Or some would say what it means to have a right relationship with God. Well, that's, that's what a philosophy is. Some may call it a worldview. They're not exactly the same, but if you, if you know what a worldview is, a way of thinking about everything, that's what Paul's talking about. And what stands out here is the essence or the origin of what Paul is warning us all against, where he says it's according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he says either this is coming from human tradition, which simply means it originated with and it's transmitted by humans. And of course, that doesn't make it wrong. There are a lot of humans that have had a lot of ideas that in fact are right. They're good. They're beautiful. But what Paul is saying is this is in contrast to divine revelation. The origin is it comes from people, not originally from God. Or he says, or maybe it comes even from elemental spirits. Now, this part's a little trickier to understand. In Paul's day, it could actually mean one of three things. And often in the semantic range, these three things overlap. So he could be referring to all three or just one of the three or two of the three. Number one, elemental spirits could literally refer to the basic elements of the universe. And way back then, you may know, they weren't thinking in terms of carbon atoms and oxygen atoms and different molecules and things. They were thinking earth, wind, fire, and water. And very often in Greek writing, when you refer to elemental spirits, you're referring to earth, wind, fire, and water. But number two, the second idea of what an elemental spirit is, they were were supernatural powers like spirits or demonic or angelic Forces and they were often associated with number one. So, for example, the different religions, the different cultures back then may have had a god of fire, you know, or a god of the earth who ultimately rules over like the fertility of the earth or something like that. And then the third idea is the elementary or basic principles of something. We would think like the ABCs. You know, as your kids go off to school, before they're taught to read, obviously they need to know the A, B, C, so recognize letters and then start putting those together. Very often in Greek writing, the elemental spirits of something were like the, the basic principles that you had to learn before you could get to anything else. Okay, well, based on what Paul says here in verses 10 and 15, which we'll come to, I believe he's probably referring to definition two with some overlap to number one. He's talking about supernatural powers, What we'll find out later in this letter of Colossians is that some people in this Greek culture in what is today modern-day Turkey had an obsession with angelic and spiritual forces. And they believed that somehow, you know, talking to or understanding these angelic forces would lead them into a right relationship with God. And so what I hear Paul saying here is just as simple as this. He's saying your worldview, your way of thinking about everything, it's either going to come from a human source or some spiritual source other than God, or it's going to come from God himself. And it's really this simple. If I were to summarize this first point, he's saying, if your worldview, if your way of thinking does not come from Jesus Christ, watch out. Well, why? Well, this is the second point, their end. Where where are these philosophies leading me, Paul? Number one, you notice he says, the end of any human or demonic philosophy, the end of any of them, 
is that you're ultimately left empty. So Paul refers to worldly philosophies as empty deceit. And the word empty could literally mean like empty-handed, or it could refer more figuratively to something without substance, purpose, or effect. Like it promises you something. It promises you a certain outcome, a certain effect, but then you find that that thing is not there. It does not actually affect that change in your life. Why? Because he says they're deceitful or they're misleading. I want to pause here for a moment. Humans are made in the image of God. Okay, it's a core tenet of our Christian faith that black or white, rich or poor, male or female, any way you could divide up people, we are all equally made in the image of God. But that image, because of sin, because of the curse, because of the brokenness in us and the brokenness around us, that image is badly marred. So what that means, if we're thinking about human philosophies, is that the best of human philosophies have errors in them. And the worst of human philosophies probably have some kernel of truth. Because there are vestiges of this image of God in us. We still think like God to some degree. So I'm not saying that there aren't better philosophies and really bad philosophies that immediately take you off track. There, there is a range. Now, if a philosophy literally originated in the mind of Satan or with some spiritual force that's set against God, it's obviously filled with error. But I would also say there's probably some element of truth or beauty to it. This has been kind of Satan's MO since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. He doesn't just come and say, look at this filth, look at this crud, look at this mess, look at this death. And Adam and Eve are like, woo, sign me up. He comes and he lies, he deceives, he misleads, but there is partial truth to what Satan says. There's partial beauty to his invitation or his temptation, okay? So again, obviously some philosophies are truer or better than others, but no philosophy is perfect unless it originated with a perfect God. And I mean, whether you're talking about a political philosophy, a social philosophy, a religious philosophy, a financial philosophy, a sexual philosophy, it doesn't matter. There are inherent defects and weaknesses and half-truths and maybe even outright lies in a lot of what we believe based on the thinking of the world. And so number one, I said the end is that it leaves you empty. It leaves you longing for more because it's not living up to all that you were created for. But then secondly, it also leaves you enslaved. Notice Paul says here that these human and demonic philosophies take you captive. I mean, it's literally a word that can be used for kidnapping. And if not literal kidnapping, it's for something that takes control of your thinking. It dominates you. It completely enslaves you. Okay, and this is our perception versus reality. Our perception is, no, I choose the way I think. You know, I listen to all the things that are out there. I listen to the different philosophies. And then I choose the one that kind of works for me or the way I think the world works. And I'm in control of it. Because I would change my, my, I would change my mind if I were wrong. But the reality is, if you've chosen a philosophy or theory or worldview or religion that is the invention of men, or worse, it's the invention of demons, you are not in control. You're a slave to that thing. And I think to make this practical, I've just been thinking this week about some popular modern-day philosophies. And these things are peddled as, this is the panacea. 
Like if, if humans could just work, think, uh, if humans could just work to think this particular way, you know, racism would be gone. It would no longer be a thing if everyone just thought this way or homelessness or the disparity of wealth or you, you take any issue and we're being peddled these gospels, these philosophies, these ways of thinking that say, this is the answer. And the problem is these philosophies have tremendous power over us because they strike at the heart of things that are important to us. Things like your identity, your sexuality, your money, your politics, your ethics. This is the way the philosophies are shaped. And I was just thinking this week about how enslaving these philosophies are. And you just take a, take a deep breath as you step back and just look at our culture today and you see how polarized and polarizing everything is. Like no one can just believe their thing and say, you know, I'm kind of a, whatever, a capitalist, but I see some problems with my philosophy. I see some problems with my system. There's some value to the things that you believe. Let's have an intelligent conversation about it. No, we have to go racing to opposite ends of the spectrum and almost demonize the people who think differently. What's interesting is when I go back to this text, I see Paul saying, not just see to it that you are not captivated by a philosophy. He says, see to it that no one tries to captivate you with a philosophy. And isn't that what's happening in our culture today? It's not just that the philosophy itself is captivating and enslaving. It is that other people are coming to you as kind of the power brokers of society. And they're saying all good and decent and thoughtful people think this way. And if you want to get on board with where culture's going, you need to think like we think. And they're trying to enslave you to a certain kind of thinking. And I wrote a bunch of these down. Again, it, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a financial philosophy like capitalism versus socialism or Marxism or a more ethical type of philosophy like traditional versus progressive or something that's a hot button issue right now with the death of a Supreme Court justice is what's your judicial philosophy? You know, are you a constructionist or an activist? Black lives matter or all lives matter? You know, hedonism or utilitarianism, existentialism, postmodernism, deconstruction, critical theory, which leads to critical race. And there are all these ideas, philosophies, ways of thinking. And many of them, most of them have some truth to them, which is part of why they're so misleading. But I want you to hear what Paul's saying is you don't, as a follower of Jesus, you don't just go all in for any human philosophy, whether you're like, well, I'm more conservative, or many of you here, you'd say, I'm more liberal and progressive, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, are you checking your philosophy with the word of God as your ultimate authority, or are you trying to convince other people, even as you are convinced yourself, that you have the right way of thinking? And that's one of the ways that we're led captive is that we, we get so entrenched in our way of thinking, we defend things maybe initially that we're like, man, that does seem a little off. But over time, you become more strident, more angry, more, more divisive over the philosophies that you follow and you can't see the good in others and certainly not the good in Christ. All right. Let's go on to the second option. So there's this subtle danger of any human philosophy, any worldly philosophy, but now we come to the superiority of Christus. And let's just see how Paul, first of all, contrasts the essence of Christ with 
the origin or the essence of any other philosophy you could possibly consider. Notice this verse where he says, in him that is in Christ, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, who is the head of all rule and authority. He's saying Jesus doesn't just claim to be God. He doesn't somehow just reflect God to us. He's not just a rabbi or a teacher about God. The Bible says all throughout, he is the fullness of God. Anything that the eternal God is, everything that the eternal God is, is also found in Jesus because he is himself the eternal God and the eternal son of God. Okay, that's all I need to say about the essence. He's God. He's the rule of every heavenly authority. So what, what end does he lead me to if I follow him, if I put my thinking in him, my trust and hope in him? Number one, you notice you're fulfilled. Verses nine and 10, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. And the picture here is that you are being filled and fulfilled. You're being satisfied by one who is himself filled and satisfied and satisfying, okay? Let's just imagine you just finished hiking or exercising or you just haven't eaten all day and you come up on this plate and, and one thing sitting on this plate, there's this giant bag of cotton candy and next to it, there's this little tiny pure protein bar, Okay? And you're like, I, I, am, I am hungry, I am empty, I need to be satisfied, I need to be filled. And of course, you pick the cotton candy because the volume is so much more, right? And I had to look this up. I mean, now I feel bad about ever getting these for my kids at like a baseball game. One little chunk of cotton candy, 250 calories and 60 grams of pure sugar. And that's all it is, it's spun sugar. Okay, so you could consume that, and you, obviously you know, and this is what worldly philosophies are like. I think it's, a, it's an amazing analogy that like, you, you, you take this clump of thing and you put it in your mouth, and, and what happens? You realize it's just mostly empty. There's almost nothing there, and what is there is sugar that maybe gives you that quick high, that quick hit. You feel great about this is my way of thinking, and I know I'm right. I know you're wrong, and how do I know you're wrong? Because I know I'm right. And this is what worldly philosophies do to us, and they're not fulfilling. And you look at this little tiny protein bar, 290 calories, 30 grams of protein, three grams of dietary fiber. You know, it's intended to be much more satisfying and fulfilling. And you will only be as fulfilled, as satisfied, friends, as the thing that you ingest, the thing that you take into your affections, the thing that you take into your thinking it will either leave you empty or it will leave you satisfied. Well, the offer here is Christ coming to you and saying, I'm the fullness of everything good. I'm the fullness of everything divine. And if you hope in me and trust in me, I want to fill you. I want to fill you with me. Okay, so you're fulfilled. And a second end here is that you're free. Okay, so the worldly philosophies come and they promise you all kinds of freedom, right? This is why we go after them. They promise financial freedom. You know, well, I'm a, I'm a hard worker, so obviously I'm a capitalist because that promises me financial freedom. And someone else will say, well, I, I have a different way of thinking and socialism promises me financial, and it promises financial freedom for everyone else too. So it, it raises all ships and that's a better thing, right? And we go after different things because of financial freedom. We go after different philosophies, different ways of thinking because of sexual freedom. 
I can do with my physical body what I want because it's my body and this way of thinking tells me that not only is that okay, but that's the right thing. There's philosophies that promise political freedom, freedom from harm, freedom from racism, freedom to be whoever you want to be. But in the end, the problem with any worldly philosophy is it can't free you from the one thing. It can't free you from the curse. It cannot free you from death. But in Christ, you're truly free. And I want you to look at this for a moment. In verse 11, you notice Paul brings up circumcision, right? And that, that makes us squirm. That makes me squirm. I got to say that up here and it's going out online. And that's just weird. What are you doing? But you notice that what he's talking about here is not the Old Testament, like the physical cutting of the flesh, what he's actually saying, in a sense, is that that Old Testament symbol where to become like a, a Jewish male in covenant with God is that there was a literal cutting of the flesh. You had to be done away with something. But he's now making a spiritual analogy. And what he's saying is what needs to be removed is not a part of your body. What needs to be removed is your attachment to the old flesh or your old ways of thinking. You've got to cut off old ways of thinking, old ways of desiring and embrace a new way. Why? Because verse 13, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says, if you don't cut off this thing, it's like a gangrenous limb and you could cut it off and lose a part of you or you could keep it and you would lose all of you. You would lose you. And Paul's saying spiritually, you've got to cut this off because you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your flesh. You were dead in these old ways of thinking. Sin leads to death. So how do you break free? How do you cut off that part of you that is producing death in you? And the Bible's answer is a little shocking because what Paul says here and what the Bible says uniformly elsewhere is if you want to be done with that part of you that's killing you, you have to undergo a kind of death. And before you think that he's doing some kind of self-harm or masochistic suicidal thing, he's talking simply about the need to identify with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he goes on here and says, just like the Apostles' Creed, where the Apostles' Creed would say it this way, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell the third day he arose again from the dead. The scripture, the apostles' creed, where we're taught Jesus Christ died, but in that death and in that resurrection, he defeated sin. He defeated the curse. He defeated death itself. He defeated anything that could steal your ultimate freedom. Jesus said, I beat it. And that's why this morning the title is Vanity or Victory because the philosophy that you are thinking, the philosophies that drive your life and your actions are either ultimately vain and empty or they produce victory over anything that could sink you. And this is verses 12 and 13 where he says, you were buried with him. You were raised with him through faith and you are made alive together with him. And what he's saying is there needs to be this identification with what Jesus Christ already historically did to lay down his life and to take it up again. And you just say, Jesus, by faith, I'm with you. And when you make that choice and you follow God and you answer his call to just come and follow in faith. The Bible says, then the law can't condemn you 
None of these philosophies can come with their accusations of like, you're just in the wrong camp if you don't believe like us. They can't touch you. Nothing can harm you. They have no power over you. Death itself has no claim. You're truly free. Okay, so this is, again, we're talking about the end of following Christ. You're fulfilled, you're free. Finally, you're forgiven. And to help us understand forgiveness, Paul uses a financial analogy. He says, sin is like a debt. And the longer you live, here's what God could be doing. He could be saying, you sinned again, I write it in your book. You sinned again, I write it in your book. You should have done that, but you didn't do that. You left it undone, I write it in your book. You overstepped, you trespassed, that word is used here. I wrote it in your book. Oh, you had that thought, you never acted on it, so good for you, but it was a bad thought, so I write it in your book. You desired wrongly in your heart, I write it in your book. And, and we can picture sin as like over the course of our lives, our book is getting longer and longer, the debts are growing and growing and growing, and very early on we realize this is, this is surpassed a point where I can pay my own debt. And listen, if you want this eternal life that's promised by Jesus, the reality is someone has to pay your debt. Now, if we choose to pay the debt of our own sin, the price is death. And not just physical death, like we all go in the ground one day, the price is spiritual death, which means a kind of separation from God. But, but listen, in this section of scripture, Paul plants a kernel of the gospel and says, here it is, friends. Here is the good news that changes everything. Verses 13 and 14, he says, Jesus has forgiven us all our trespasses. How? He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's the picture. Here's your ledger. It's got all these things written in it. Okay, the record of debts and sins and what does a just judge have to say about your record? What does a just judge have to say? Oh, I love you. I like you. Don't worry about it. No sweat. I believe in grace. No, for God to be just, for God to be righteous and truthful, he has to enact a payment of the debts that are written in your book, that are written in my book. He has to. But do you understand what Jesus did in coming to earth for you? By the way, the book of Revelation says that Jesus is the eternal God who's coming back one day to judge the entire world. And it says on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you believe him today or not, whether you follow other philosophies today or not, you will bow before him as Lord and King and judge. And here's the incredible thing. 2,000 years ago, the eternal God steps into this world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he lived a perfectly sinless life that you and I should have lived but failed to. And then at the end of his life, as he goes up to Jerusalem for that last Passover, and he's headed to a cross, here's, here's kind of the kind of conversation he's having with the Father. Father, take their ledger take their sin and write it into my ledger. So everything wrong that they've done, put it on my account and take my righteousness, take my perfection and put it in their account because someone's gonna pay for it. It's just, it's not gonna be them. It's not gonna be my sons and daughters. I'm going to pay. And then the picture is that he goes to this cross 
And I love, love the way he puts it here where he took this record of debt that stood against you, that stood against me, and it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And the picture here, most commentators think he's referring to something that in that culture was called the titulus or the titulus, where the, the Romans, before they crucified or hung or impaled a person, would write the charges and then nail it above the cross or the pole that they were impaled to and say, if you're walking by and you're, you're mocking this person, hanging here naked and bleeding and dying. Here's how you know what charges were brought against them so that we are just in taking this person's life. And this is the picture. He says, Jesus took all of your debt. He took all of my debt. He wrote it in his book and said, nail it to my cross because here's what I'm dying for. I'm dying for your record of debt. How do we know that we're forgiven today? Is that just a pie in the sky promise? No, because God became one of us and he lived the life we should have lived, but then he died the death that we ought to have died, taking our sin and putting it on his cross and saying, I'm paying for what you did. There's no debt left for you to pay. So in Jesus, we not only get the freedom that we long for and the fulfillment, the satisfaction that we long for, we get perfect forgiveness. So nothing can stand in the way of God fulfilling these promises to us. Okay, then one more thing. I told you this is his essence. This is his end. And here's a word that some of you have heard of and some of you maybe have not. The last point is this is his eucatastrophe. It's a word coined by J.R.R. Tolkien where he admits, I made up this word. I took the word catastrophe, which means, you know, disaster. It's a, it's a wreck. It's a mess. It's terrible. And I put the little prefix U, E-U. It's a U catastrophe. Okay, what's, what's you? It's good, right? You go to someone's funeral and there's a eulogy. Yeah, we should probably say a few good words about this person now that they're dead, right? So a you catastrophe is a good catastrophe. And Tolkien himself says this, I coined the word you catastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And this is verse 15, which says he, that is God, The father disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. And this this to me is one of the most incredibly well-written verses of scripture, Colossians 2.15. You know what he's saying? Here's the picture. You know know the picture of crucifixion. You've been to Good Friday services or you've read it somewhere. You've heard about it. You know, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, stripped naked, flogged, beaten, spat upon, spread out and nailed to that cross, displayed openly for shame. And all the pastors are by are going by and, you know, wagging their fingers and wagging their heads and they're spitting on him and they're shouting insults of like, if you're really the son of God, then why don't you come down? See, we all know you're powerless. You can't. You know that picture. And what Paul says here in closing this section that we're looking at here this morning is he says, you know what actually was happening in that moment is that as the earthly and demonic authorities are ganging up on Jesus to strip him naked and publicly humiliate him and nail him to a cross, Jesus is actually in defeat and in surrender and in weakness. He is going to his ultimate victory because this is why he came. He came to take your book and he came to nail it to his cross and say, it's all paid in full. Now you can go free by just simply coming to God the Father in me, by me, through me, because I've done it. 
And what Paul's saying is that the graphic reality of what Jesus was doing is he's turning his shameful public defeat into a shameful public victory over all of his enemies. And he's saying on the cross, because this is what he's doing with our sins, he's actually stripping all the authorities of heaven and earth and by heaven, I mean the, the spiritual forces that are allied against him. He's stripping them naked. He's saying, you have no leg to stand on. You are naked and exposed because you have promised lies that lead nowhere but to emptiness and enslavement. I've exposed them for what they are. And now I bring you this hope. Just come to me alone. Friends, just evaluate your own ways of thinking of, I'm not telling you not to believe other philosophies. You, you can't go through life without exercising probably dozens of philosophies simultaneously, thinking different ways simultaneously to get on in this world. What he's saying is don't be captivated by those things. Don't be controlled by those things. And, and here's the punchline. Either your heart will be captivated by Christ or you will be a captive. Either you will say, Jesus, have my heart and thank you for making me free and making me fulfilled and satisfied, fullness of joy, fullness of comfort, fullness of a future hope. Thank you for that fullness. Thank you for forgiveness that I didn't deserve. You paid my debt. Lord, you can have my heart. I, you've captivated my imagination. You've captivated my ways of thinking. You've captivated my will. And by being captivated in Christ, I'm truly free. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, captivate our hearts.